0: You know, I'm reminded, I've been getting a a few letters, some of them have been pretty juicy lately, if you know what I mean. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about one in this sermon today, but I've been signing my letters, which I've never done before, I don't know why I actually started, but I've been signing them, on Christ the solid rock I stand. And then I come in here, and there you are, singing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. You know, today we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about the, the transfiguration experience of Jesus, which is a very familiar uh, passage, and it's found in all three of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic means same. So Matthew, Mark and Luke all have the transfiguration of Jesus experience. But I want us to look at this passage today in a bit of an unfamiliar way. I want us to talk about not just the transfiguration of Jesus, but how Jesus transfigured the valley. You see, in the ninth chapter that we'll be looking at today, we have that uh, story about the transfiguration. But in the tenth chapter, you have the story that continues the healing ministry of Jesus and the disciples and some of their frustrations and Jesus basically teaching them how to minister to people in the valley. And in the 10th chapter, it starts off with the calling of the 70, the expansion of the disciples into these 70 that are sent out two by two, and Jesus has special instruction for them. You know, we have a fantastic story in the Mount of Transfiguration, but we need to remember that the experience on the mountain not only was about the transfiguration of Jesus, but it was about the transfiguration of the valley, and specifically, how we see the people in the valley. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to the ninth chapter of Luke's Gospel. And I want to ask us this question this morning as we go forward. The question for us to think about as we meditate on God's Word this morning is this. How does the experience on the mountain with Jesus... Change a believer's view of the valley and the people in it. Now let me ask it a little different way. How does the experience of the transfiguration of Jesus transform you in the way you see life in the valley and the people in it? Let's turn to the 28th verse of the ninth chapter. It will come on the screens I think and let's stand for the reading of God's word. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, who were talking with him. Now, Moses would represent the law And Elijah would represent the prophets. So the fulfillment of the law and the prophets in Jesus was what the disciples saw. And they all appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since... They had stayed awake. They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. And while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. I want to read the 37th verse. It may not be on the screen. And on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, we know what is meant by a mountaintop experience. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience when everything just really seemed like it it couldn't get much better than this and Perhaps a mountaintop experience could be tied to a a life event of sorts that that, that really did kind of accentuate this feeling of, gosh, this is so good. It might have been a graduation or it might have been a a baptism or it might have been a a first kiss or it might have been the first day of a new job or it might have been a wedding, it might have been the birth of a child, it might have been the birth of a grandchild. But you know what I mean by mountaintop experience. It, it could be spiritual. It could have been that church camp that you went to uh, that time when everything just seemed to be so right. Or it could have been an experience that you had in church or in a small group or, or in a recovery group. But, but in a spiritual experience, you felt God draw close to you. It might have been in an intimate conversation that you were having with a, a spouse or with um, a parent. And, and you just felt like that things were so transparent and so real that it, it was just a mountaintop experience. That's exactly what Peter, James, and John felt. There they were with the Lord. He would called them out to pray. He went up on the mountain to pray. And that was not uncommon because Jesus was often calling this triad uh, out to be with him when he entered the time of prayer. Sometimes they go sound asleep, right? But this time they were awake and they saw this transformation before their very eyes. And when Jesus in dazzling white appeared and, and all of this radiance and, and there was Elijah and there was Moses. I don't know how they could tell it was Elijah and Moses, but they knew it was Elijah and Moses. And it was just like, this is, this is so great. Let's just build tabernacles for you, Jesus, and for Elijah and for Moses. And we'll just stay here on the mountaintop but that wasn't the plan. You know, the word transfigured means to change or to convert or or to alter. And, And we know that in that situation that the disciples' view of Jesus was transfigured They knew when they saw him as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They knew when they heard the voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That things would never be the same related to their um, association with Jesus. For Jesus in his divinity was affirmed and confirmed uh, in his ministry. And Peter, James, and John had a glimpse of his divinity in that moment. But they couldn't stay on the mountaintop. From that very experience, when things just didn't seem could get any better than that, Jesus takes them down the next day to the valley, and their ministry starts. And Luke, throughout that ninth chapter and into the tenth chapter, it's all about the disciples involved, equipped in ministry. It's all about Jesus teaching them the ways of healing and the disciples practicing those ways with the people in the valley. You know, I want to say to us this morning that we really do need those mountaintop experiences, and sometimes we even get them at church, don't we? Sometimes we leave here on Sunday morning after Scott or Reagan have preached, and we say, "You know, the Lord spoke to me this morning," or as somebody said as I was coming in, "You know, the ministry of Reagan and Scott it means so much to me." It's like you're talking about this. Thrive experience being a mountaintop, and I'm glad it is. We need mountaintop experiences. But we know we're all called not to stay here, but go into the valley. Not just to wait till next week when we can come back to the mountain, but to go back into the valley with some intentionality about being Jesus and His love in the world. There was a preaching professor named Fred Craddock. And he uh, taught at Candler School of Theology back when, uh, when I was going to seminary shortly after the, the earth's surface had cooled. And he loved to tell stories. He was a narrative preacher and a really, really wonderful one. And one of his stories I remember to this day, it was about a young preacher who was fresh out of seminary. He was in his first charge. There was a woman in his church, an elderly woman, and she was in the hospital, and she called him from her hospital bed, and she reported how sick she was. She had a terrible prognosis, and, and she was very ill. The doctors didn't give her much hope, and she was sharing with this young preacher, and she said, Pastor, I, I need you to come visit me. So, I mean, he's fresh out of seminary. He knew what to do. He said, well, I'll be there in a minute, and so he he drives to the hospital. He goes and visits her in her room, and he finds her in uh, much the state that she described. She was very sick, and 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 she continued with that story that seemed to be so hopeless. And you know, all the time he was driving over there, he was wondering what he was going to say to her because the situation was really so dire. And 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 then, as their conversation um, was winding down, and he knew his visit was nearing an end, he said to her, um, "Would you like me to pray for you?" And she said, well, sure, I'd like you to pray for me. That, that's why that's why I called you. And he said, well, I know he learned this in seminary. Well, what would you like me to pray for? And she said, well, I'd like you to pray for my healing. And so the young man was afraid of that because uh, the skeptic that he was, he knew that healing wasn't too likely for her but he, he did whip up a prayer for her healing and he prayed for her and he, he prayed for her in a way that he said was not um, really all that great it wasn't an earth shaking kind of prayer but when he said amen and he looked up this woman's eyes were wide open and they looked different and she said you know pastor I think it worked I think I'm healed and, and, he, and, and Craddock tells the story that she got out of her bed and, and, and she straightened up and she said, I am healed. And she walked through the hospital hall saying, I'm healed. Hey, folks, I'm healed. I'm healed. And all the time this pastor is just shocked. And he finds the stairwell and he he walks down five Uh, stories until he gets to the ground and there he is, he's just in a stupor he walks out to his car, he finally finds his car he's fumbling for his keys and and all the time he looked up to heaven and he said, God, don't you ever do that to me again (laughs) and you know, Craddock's telling this story about this young preacher and you know, we're reminded that sometimes we lose that sense of awe sometimes we lose that understanding of the valley in which we're called to serve. Sometimes we lose that sense of the mysterious and realize that we pray to God for a healing that we know will happen either on this side or the other side of the Jordan and we can pray with confidence to a God who hears our prayers. Sometimes we miss the fact that we're the ones who are called into the valley to women just like this in need of a prayer. And we're the ones called on to give it. You know, you know I know we've been talking about it lately. Um, the United Methodist Church has taken kind of a hit lately. Um, it hadn't been the greatest few weeks for us. Um, I know that some of the Bible churches are applauding the loudest for us. And We even made Fox News as the denomination that may save the tradition of the Christian Protestant church. I received a six-page single-spaced letter from a dear friend this week who is a part of a Bible church in another state. And toward the end of this lengthy letter that I won't go into today, he said, I'm praying for you. Now, you know when people pray for you, that can be good and that can be bad. You know, sometimes when people say they're praying for you, they really are praying for you. And, and they're, they're praying for your well-being. Sometimes when they're praying for you, they're really praying that you don't go to hell and they fully expect you will. Have you ever had anybody praying for you? Oh, that's always fun. Uh, well, you, you know, I decided that I would just go online and look up this Bible church. You, you know, you have to read the fine print in some churches to, to fully know what you're getting into. Now, now I want to say that that maybe I'm feeling a little bit defensive of my United Methodism. But there is a reason I'm United Methodist. And it's not because we're right. It's because we know we might be wrong. And admit it. You you know, when you get to a place where you can say, you know, I might be wrong, then you really have that understanding of what it means to be open to different views. and, And to realize that You know, by faith we go forward, following what we believe is the Holy Spirit's leadership. Well, I went online and I read a little of the fine print and what I discovered was not a surprise, but the only people in this church who could be in leadership were men. Not because they were better, just because of their biological makeup, right? I guess. But mostly because that's what it says in the Bible. And the only people who could um, be ordained were men in this church. And furthermore, the elders of the church could decide who could be members and who could not be members, and who could be kicked out of the church, and the process which the church would go through if you were to be expelled from membership. And, And all of this was based on the Bible. But what struck me in reading the bylaws of this Bible-professing church was when they got to the part about talking about the gifts of the Spirit or the spiritual gifts. And in their preamble it said, The gifts of healing and other gifts of the Spirit stated in the Bible no longer meet the description nor fulfill the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit that we read about in Scripture. In other words, what it says in the Bible about the gifts of the Spirit, you can just say that doesn't happen anymore. You can forget that. But all this other stuff, you know, this really happens, and we don't have to look at this. It's very important. And then I wondered, you know, the fastest growing church in the world is the Pentecostal church, who they're driven by ex- the, the experience of the gifts of the Spirit. So so nobody told the Pentecostals that God had stopped healing and stopped giving the gifts of tongues and all of these other things that are the gifts of the Spirit spoken about in the Bible. But, But this was the most important thing I discovered. It was in their preamble about eternal damnation. Listen up. The souls of unbelievers remain after death in conscious misery until the final judgment of the great white throne at the close of the millennium when soul and body reunited shall be cast into a lake of fire and not be annihilated but to be punished with everlasting separation from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. You know when I read that I thought well My gosh, if I believed that, I couldn't sleep at night. Not so much worried about myself, even though I might need to worry about myself. And come to think of it, I am worried about myself. But (laughs) mainly about worrying about other people. If you really believe people are going to be alive in an eternal damnation and are going to flail away for the rest of eternity, burning but not being consumed or whatever that's about, wouldn't you want to try to bring as many people as you possibly could into a, into a relationship with Jesus Christ? Wouldn't you have this extra desire driven by God's love of God's children not to want anybody to ever experience that? You, you probably would unless you had a belief that some people were predestined to that burning eternity and some people were lucky enough not to be and then the question is well am I one of the lucky ones you don't know till the end I know why I'm a United Methodist and I know that in this denomination we believe in a transfigured valley And and the call of our Lord into that valley where real people live. Where real people hurt. Where real people are are looking for for love in all the empty places. Where, Where real people have these fears and these tears in everyday life. And they need the hope that the church represents. Real people in the valley that have the joy of being a parent and bringing a child into the world. And then tomorrow you start thinking about the world in which you have to raise the child. In the valley where where, where marriage brings so much happiness and yet you realize the reality is that there's so much divorce. Divorce. A valley where there are people aching with loneliness and there are shut-ins and homebound people. There there are people who, uh, who are in loneliness for all sorts of reasons. The people in the valley, name your person in the valley that you right now have on your heart. That God has put on your heart. That we are called to leave here, this mountaintop, and go into the valley to serve with the good news of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've heard the, the story about the, the, the preacher who goes to his appointment. You know, used to we had parsonages. Some churches still do. But the parsonage, you know, was a house provided for you by the church. And sometimes you even had furnished parsonages. And that was no good either. Because you had to be in somebody else's furniture. You know, and, and you had a yard and most of the time it was the preacher's responsibility to keep up the yard. Well, such was the case of this preacher who got, um, let's call this preacher Scott, okay? This preacher named Scott who gets to this church. And, and he realizes this yard work is not going to be good. So he, he has really two choices. He either needs to find somebody to do the yard work. Or he needs to find a used lawnmower that he could afford so that he could, you know, mow his own yard. And here, here comes a kid pushing a lawnmower. And he said, hey, kid, he said, uh, are you interested in doing some work? And the, the guy said, well, yeah, I am. I mow yards. He said, well, could you mow my yard? He said, I'd love to mow your yard. He said, I'm trying to save up enough money to buy me a bike at the end of the summer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy me a 10-speed bike at the end of the summer. And the preacher said, well, I have a 10-speed bike. I don't ever ride it. Why don't don't I trade you? I'll give you my 10-speed bike. You give me your lawnmower. Then you will have accomplished your purpose, and I will have accomplished mine. And the kid said, that is great. He was ecstatic. And so the preacher went in and got uh, in his garage, got the bicycle out, and the the kid started riding the bicycle, and, boy, he was having a good time. And and the preacher started pulling that lawnmower uh, rope, and and he pulled, and he pulled, and he pulled, and he pulled, and... Nothing happened, and about that time, the kid came around the corner, and, and the preacher was waving, come over here, come over here, he said, you know, there, there's something wrong with this lawnmower, how do you start it, I mean, what, what am I doing wrong, how, how do you start this lawnmower, and the kid said, oh, it's kind of difficult, said, you really have to cuss at it, in order to start it, the preacher said, well, son, I, I'm a pastor, and I don't cuss, said, I've, I haven't cussed in a long time, said, I... I gave up cussing a long time ago, and I'm not about to start cussing again. I've forgotten how. The boy said, Well, I tell you what, preacher, you keep pulling on that rope, and it's all going to come back to you. <laughs> you know, when I read that story again, I thought, you know, what we like about that story is there's a bit of real and authentic, genuine stuff in it that the boy's reminding the preacher about. You know, it's not about how holy and how removed uh, this preacher was sensing himself to be, but the boy was reminding him that, you know, we're all here in the valley pulling the rope. You You know, part of what I think today in the valley that we see are a lot of young people who have kind of given up on the church. It seems like a waste of time. It's long since not been a mountaintop experience. And they see a lot of hypocrisy in the church. Or, or at least what they judge to be hypocrisy. And, and then the church makes the headlines. And, and it just seems to be so fake. And so insensitive. You know, you know part of the capital campaign is a little project. It's kind of hidden in the midst of, of all of the stuff that we're trying to do it's called 723 it, it's a it's a mission 723 Fort Worth Avenue it's on the near west side of Dallas just around the corner from Trinity Groves and all of that area where apartments are springing up and Young people are everywhere and new businesses and places to eat right there. And a member of the church made this warehouse available to us. She fixed it up. It's just totally remodeled. It is a wonderful mission hub. And there we are. We have it. We hadn't quite figured out what to do with it. But we know that we're right in the middle of the valley. And there are all these people around us. And what we're praying about is that we can... Have a worship service that, that is real and genuine. And and far from fake or insensitive. I mean it's one of those we're pulling the rope kind of worship services. Scott and Reagan are going to be a part of that. Sarah Luganville. Ted Campbell has been a part of the beginning of that. But we hope that also that these people find this little mission hub called 723 is a place to gather and a place to come where they can be in Bible studies and, 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 and share faith and can, can, can be real and transparent with one another. And, and those Bible studies may move out of 723 and may go to a, a bar, you know, That's a great place for a Bible study these days. I mean, it's kind of like pulling the rope. Well, I don't drink beer. You keep ministering the valley long enough, preacher, you're going to drink beer. (laughs) The church today has to be real and authentic, and it can't stay on the mountaintop. It has to go in the valley. It has to meet people where they are we have to get that and we have to be conscious of ways that we can go out there and and intersect with people who may never come in here I close Peter and the others they needed that mountaintop all of us do, don't we? We need that place where we center ourselves on Jesus the divine, the author of our salvation. But we also hear the call of Jesus not to stay on the mountaintop, but that he will go with us into the valley. And you know a little secret about Peter and really James and John as well His Is they didn't go up on that mountaintop to find God. God called them to that mountaintop. And God found them. And when God found them, they became very well aware of the foundation of their faith in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And they became very clear when, when they said, well, why don't we just stay here on the mountaintop when Jesus said, no, that's not the way we do it. We've we got to go pull the rope. we got to get right in the middle of that valley where the demons are, where people are broken, where people feel ostracized and separated and lonely we got to go right back in that valley but with a different charge and that is to be my love for those in need you see that story it surely is about the transfiguration of Jesus but the rest of the story is really about what that transformation did It transformed the valley. And the way we who follow Jesus see the valley, that's where we're called to pull the rope.